for, uh, for those who had their uh, growing up years in the 1990s, or if you had children who grew up, or, or maybe even grandchildren who grew up in the 1990s, uh, you may remember playing or, or hearing about a computer game called the Oregon Trail. Anybody play that growing up? Yeah, yep, me too. Um, I, I have fond memories as a kid going to computer class in school and just trying to get my typing done as fast as absolutely possible so that there'd be as much time left to play Oregon Trail at the, at the end of the class period. And I wasn't alone in my enjoyment of that. Uh, it was easily the, the favorite game of our class as well. And I was curious, I wonder if it still exists out there online somewhere today, and it does. On, oddly enough, like the Oregon Visitor Bureau or Tourism, whatever website, you can play the Oregon Trail. It's kind of fun. Um, I, and if you've not played the game before, the, the premise is what you might think. You, you were a settler in 1848, and you're about to venture westward across the country in an attempt to reach Oregon. And so the goal is for your traveling party of five people to make it to Oregon, but to do so you have to survive thieves and illnesses and drought and river crossings and, and whatever obstacles uh, might come your way in the game. And so as you begin the game, prior to setting out on the Oregon Trail, you've got a certain amount of money and, and you, you buy provisions for the trip. So things like oxen, clothes, food, spare parts, um, and ammunition so you can go hunting, which was the best part of the game by far. I mean, if you played it, you know that's what it was. Hunting was the, the best part of the game. And, and when deciding what provisions to buy, you kind of had a, a little bit of a quandary. You don't, you don't want to buy too little because there's nothing worse than all your oxen being stolen or dying when you're out in the middle of nowhere and then you can't go anywhere. But, but you don't want to buy too many provisions because if you spend all your money right at the very beginning, then you, you can't afford things like ferry crossings or, or emergency supplies at stops along the way. So, so it's essential to get just the right amount of provisions for the trip. Um, and as I was thinking about all of this, the sad thing is that my knowledge about the Oregon Trail computer game probably surpasses my knowledge about the actual Oregon Trail. So... Whatever that says about the educational system, I don't know. But, uh, uh, however, my hunch is that people who really did travel on the Oregon Trail or other westward trails like that had similar decisions to make when they were seeking to secure provisions before they departed on that 2,000-mile journey through difficult terrain. Today, we're going to be talking about provisions, um, but provisions of a different sort. So in, in, uh, in the first part of Luke chapter 9, which is where we will be today, we're going to see Jesus giving provision both to those he sent out and those who come to him. So we'll see two groups of people experiencing provision. And, and before we get into those stories specifically, looking at provisions from the hand of Jesus, I think it's good to understand how God shows himself as provider to the Israelites uh, in the Old Testament. It kind of sets the stage. Uh, when you're reading in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament has many different names for God or, or ways to describe God, if we can say it that way. 
Um, and the Hebrew names all convey something about who God is, about his character. So, so for example, the, the name Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, and it describes something about God. The, uh, the name Jehovah Rapha means the Lord uh, heals. Jehovah Shema means the Lord is there. And, and of special interest to us today, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. That was one of the Hebrew names, Hebrew descriptions for God. The Lord will provide. And God shows himself to be a provider all the way from the first pages of the Bible. Uh, but the name is first spoken in connection with Abraham and Isaac. It's the first time you see that name, Jehovah Jireh. In Genesis 22... God tested Abraham, told him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on, on Mount Moriah. And so as the famous story goes, Abraham was obedient to God. Uh, he took Isaac with him to Mount Moriah. He was prepared to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, but then the last moment was stopped by God. God told Abraham, don't hurt Isaac. And, and then Abraham looked up and he saw, saw that ram caught in the bush which served as the sacrifice that was made to God. And in response to that whole event, Abraham named the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And then as, you know, as history would continue to unfold, as you read through the Old Testament, God continued to show himself to be Jehovah Jireh, provider to his people. Um, you see it in Exodus chapter 16. God miraculously and, and powerfully showed himself as provider after the people had just been set free from Egypt. They were traveling through the wilderness. They're on their way to Mount Sinai. And, and because they were a large group who left Egypt quickly and found themselves in a desolate area, they needed food. They'd run out of food. And, and it was then that God provided for their needs. Jehovah Jireh. He provided. He, he brought quail into the camp and then proceeded to cover the ground for the next 40 years with that mysterious edible substance known as manna. For 40 years, God provided. I mean, you think about it, every day for 40 years, the people were given a reminder regarding Jehovah Jireh. Every meal, they were given that reminder that God is a God who provides. Uh, there's another example in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's kind of an interesting story. There's, there's a, a famine in the land, and the prophet Elisha was there with uh, the sons of the prophets, is, is what it says. And, and food was so scarce that they were, out, they were out looking for food. Someone found this wild vine, didn't know what it was, but thought, hey, it looks like there's something edible on it. Let's take this gourd back. Let's uh, uh, use it for food. So they made it into a stew and quickly realized it was poisonous. And then at that point, uh, Elisha throws some flour into the pot and the stew miraculously becomes safe to eat. I don't know what kind of cooking trick that was, right? I mean, it's the power of God. But he did that. He threw it in. The stew became miraculous, but uh, the stew became edible. But it was just the, uh, the opening act, really, for what was going to happen next. Because then a man came to the group. And he had 20 loaves of bread and some grain. And Elisha said, well, we'll give the bread to the, to the group. And the man protested and said, uh, but th there's a hundred men here. This isn't enough to feed 
this entire group of a hundred men. And Elisha says, do it anyway. Give the bread to the men anyway. The man did so, and the hundred men ate all that they wanted, and there was even some left over. And, and it, it rightly, the, the credit was given to God, that God provided for Elisha, for this group of a hundred sons of the prophets. Jehovah Jireh proved himself, again, to be a God who provides. And, and there's stories like that all over the Old Testament. Um, I, the reason I chose those three is uh, the one with Abraham, because that's the first one. That's where you first see the name, Jehovah Jireh. But the other two I chose because they're gonna, we're going to see flashes of both of those in our text in Luke this morning. And maybe you were already making some connections as I was describing those. But, uh, but that, with that being said, let, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. If you're not there already, we're going to start at the beginning. So you can follow with me in verse 1. We'll read the first nine verses. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, if you, if you remember back a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at uh, the passage where Jesus called his large group of followers to himself, and he chose from them 12 who would be his apostles. And we talked about how there were Actually, many, many disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, but, but there were only 12 apostles, and we often call them the 12 disciples, and they were disciples. They were also commissioned as apostles, but there was a larger group that followed Jesus. So the 12 he chose all the way back in chapter 6, but it's not until here in chapter 9 that we see, him, we see them being sent out by Jesus. And, and, you know, similar to how those embarking on the journey of the Oregon Trail needed provisions for their trip, the 12 apostles needed provisions for their upcoming journey as well. But a difference with the apostles is that they weren't the ones who decided what provisions they did or didn't need for the journey. Right, when I played that computer game, I was choosing what I was going to take. When people set out on the actual trail, they decided what they were going to take. Here, the apostles didn't. What we see is that Jesus himself told them what they should and shouldn't take and provided for them what they needed for that journey. So if we look at what's written here, the two things that Jesus provided for them for their journey, the two things the apostles needed— were power and a message. That's what Jesus gave them for this journey, power 
and a message. The power given to them by Jesus was the same power they'd seen him displaying already in his ministry. Same power. They, they were given power and authority over demons, over diseases. And I mean, let's imagine that. Imagine what it must have been like to have been an apostle of Jesus at that moment. They themselves had been in awe of the things that Jesus had been doing. They, they couldn't even believe some of it right off the bat. That Jesus' power confounded them at times. And yet, here Jesus is giving them that same power and authority for their journey. And it makes me wonder if, <laughs> if Jesus had gone up to the twelve and said, hey, I'm going to send you guys out on this journey I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God. What do you need for the trip? I, I'm not sure how many, if any of them, would have said, how about your power and authority over demons and diseases? I, if I was there, I don't, I don't know if I would have asked for that. I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing that Jesus just gave it to them without asking them <laughs> what they needed for their trip. Makes me wonder if Jesus asked me what I needed would I list the things I actually need or just what I think I need for whatever journey lay before me? Jesus gave them what they needed. He gave them his power, and then in, in addition, he provided them with his message as well, the same message that he's been, been proclaiming since the beginning, this good news about the kingdom of God. Good news about the kingdom of God. When we think about the good news, good news of Jesus, we probably think about the word gospel, don't we? And we're told that's what the word gospel means, good news. When we think about the gospel, odds are the first thing that comes to our mind is Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that that is at the core of the gospel message or, or something close to that. And when I stop and ponder that statement, actually misses the bigger picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus died on the cross for my sins is a completely true statement, so don't get me wrong. And, it, and it's a statement that every person in the world needs to hear. But it is also a statement which makes the work of Jesus all about me and me alone. I mean, th th if that's what I'm saying, Jesus died on the cross for my sins— the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus, the king, has become human, and he's come into the world, and, and he's done so in order to defeat the power of Satan and sin, and he's going to reign from his throne for the rest of eternity. I mean, that, that's the message of the kingdom of God. Now, because of that, I, <clears throat> I can be forgiven uh, of my sins through Jesus' death and resurrection. That is entirely true. But the entire message of the kingdom is, is, is much larger than just my own life. So Jesus declared the good news about the kingdom during his life. That, that was the message he proclaimed, and he sent his apostles out to make that proclamation as well. The kingdom of God has come. Let's, let's hang on to that kingdom of God description for just a moment, and we're going to see how a, a earthly king responds to it shortly. But, but before we do that, look, look again at verses 3 through 5. 
after giving the apostles his, uh, his power, his message, Jesus went on to tell them all the things they're not supposed to take on this journey. No staff, no, no, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. I mean, if this were a computer game, those were exactly the things you would take on a journey. No question. And yet, Jesus told them, no, 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 don't take those things. That, that's not what's needed for this trip. They were sent out really having no option but to trust in Jehovah Jireh to provide all that they would need in the moment that they needed it. And because none of them got lost or returned starving or returned naked, we know their needs were met. They weren't sent out with any of those things, but yet God provided for them. So, so Jesus commissioned his apostles, his apostles for a journey, and in doing so, he provided them exactly what they needed when they needed it. And, and because of his provisioning, the apostles went out and, and they preached the gospel and healed everywhere. That's the description in verse 6. The message of the kingdom of God was no longer just being proclaimed by Jesus. There were now a group of 12 men additionally proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom of God. And so it's no wonder that we get to verse 7 and an earthly king in that region, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about this message, this kingdom of God proclamation. And it's no wonder that he was intrigued about this new kingdom. Why wouldn't he be if he is the earthly king ruling at that moment? And it kind of seems like it worried him just a little bit, because if there is a kingdom being proclaimed, what does a kingdom have to have? It's got to have a king, doesn't it? And if Herod the Tetrarch saying, well, wait a minute, I thought I was the king, you can see why he'd be interested by this. And, you know, why else would he even entertain the possibility that John the Baptist, whom he, whom he beheaded, had come back to life. What would even make him think that was a possibility? Well, it must be this kingdom of God proclamation that was going out. And so as a result, Herod, he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to investigate a little bit. Again, maybe, a, maybe some curiosity was there. Could have been, but, but perhaps out of that principle, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, might have been some of that going on with Herod, that that's why he wanted to meet this Jesus. And, you know, you, you think back to the birth of Jesus, there was a different Herod who was king at that point, but that Herod supposedly sought a meeting with the newborn Jesus in order to worship him. That was the reason he gave. But Matthew goes on to tell us in his gospel it, it wasn't to worship Jesus. It was, it was to kill him. So, so does Herod the Tetrarch here have similar motives, you know, wanting to see Jesus, but really wanting to to take care of Jesus, you know, take care of Jesus. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, we don't know what his motives are, but I think maybe there's some of that, and, and he will get his, he will get to meet Jesus eventually. That'll come later in the, in the gospel. But, uh, but what we see in these first nine verses is that, that Jesus provided what was needed for, for the 12 apostles as he sent them out. He, he showed himself to be Jehovah Jireh. What we see moving on in the next eight verses is that Jesus also provided for those who came to him. So look with me at verse 10. We'll read about the feeding of the 5,000. 
And, and incidentally, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, apart from the resurrection. That, of course, is in all four. This is the only other miracle that all four Gospel writers communicate. So here we go, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who, who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, I, I imagine many of us are, are, are very familiar with this miracle, and so what I want to do this morning is, is spend our time showing how this miracle connects to those two in the Old Testament that, that uh, we talked about earlier, and how it looks ahead to something that would take place about a year into the future from this point. So if we, if we go back to those two in the Old Testament, there's connections there. We, if we think first about uh, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, even though 20 loaves of bread were brought to Elisha, it wasn't nearly enough to feed that, that group of 100 uh, men present. Likewise here, even though there were five loaves and two fish among the apostles, it wasn't nearly enough to feed the 5,000 men that were present. And then, just as the, the man who brought the food to Elisha doubted the adequacy of the provision, so the disciples doubted the adequacy of the provision that they had. And then finally, just as the hundred men ate and had some left, so the crowd of 5,000 ate, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The hundred ate and were satisfied, the 5,000 eight and were satisfied as well. And it, it, it just, like, I wonder if there's supposed to be a connection there between the person of Elisha and the person of Jesus. I just wonder, ju just as Elisha came after Elijah and ministered in power, so Jesus came after John the Baptist, you know, who many compared to Elijah and, and ministered in power. I, I don't know if the people were supposed to make that connection, uh, but I think it's possible. But regardless, the event with Elisha is, is just a foretaste of, of what was to come. What we see here in, uh, uh, in the feeding of the 5,000 and, and even more something that will happen later, which we'll get to. So there's connection there. I think there's even greater connection with the story in Exodus chapter 16, where God uh, first started providing manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and if you look at verse 12 here in uh, uh, Luke 9, 
verse 12 says that the disciples wanted Jesus to send the crowd away in order to find provision because the whole event occurred in a desolate place. They were in a desolate place. Just as God's people found themselves in a desolate place with no food in Exodus 16, the setting is similar right here. And just as God miraculously provided manna for the people in a desolate place then, he also miraculously provided food for the crowd in this desolate place. And then to further the connection, we're told in uh, Luke 9:17 that the, all the people ate, they were able to eat until they were satisfied. And, and, and Exodus 16 doesn't use that word satisfied specifically, but, but we're told in uh, Exodus 16, verse 18, that, that each of them gathered as much as he could eat. It doesn't say they're satisfied, but it sure describes them as being satisfied. There was, the provision from God was plenty enough to satisfy. So, so there's no question that, that Jesus feeding the 5,000 is meant to draw a connection back to Jehovah Jireh providing bread in the wilderness in Exodus 16. And, and I think the connection is so direct that in John's gospel, he went on to write about what happened the next day in this scene. So, so after this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Jesus walked on water out, out onto the lake to the apostles who were out in the boat. The boat then arrived on the other side of the lake, and when the crowd awoke and realized that Jesus wasn't there anymore, he'd gone to the other side, uh, they tracked him down. They, they went around and they caught up with him. And it was at that point that Jesus began talking to them about the difference between, between physical bread, which would leave them hungry once again, and, and spiritual bread, the bread of life, who would fill them completely forever. So I just want to read to you Jesus' words. This is from John chapter 6, um, and I'll start in verse 48. Jesus said to the crowd that next day, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, so Jesus filling their stomachs with physical food the day before was meant to point them to his true identity as the bread of life. He's helping them make that connection in John chapter 6. Those who ate the manna back in the time of Moses died. Every one of them. It was miraculously provided bread, but everyone died. Those who ate the physical bread that Jesus had provided the day before would die also, every one of them, even though it was just as miraculous. However, what Jesus is saying is that those who eat the bread of life will live forever. They will live forever. The, the, the provision that Jesus gave the day before is, even though it was miraculous, was of such small significance compared to the provision of himself, is what he said. It's his flesh. The provision of himself that he's going to give to all who come to him. 
And, and I think it's in precisely this way that the feeding of the 5,000 foreshadows something that's going to take place a year later as in history here. You know, John tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 took place right around the time of Passover. During the Passover the following year, Jesus will again be found giving thanks, uh, breaking bread, giving it to his apostles. But that time, the connection between physical bread and the bread of life was going to be even stronger. And, and of course, the, the event I'm referring to is the Last Supper, right? On the same night, Jesus was to be, would be betrayed and arrested and put on trial and eventually crucified. He was again making the connection between the bread of life and physical bread then in the form of, of the Last Supper. And so as we look at the table here in front of us this morning, what we have is, is a reminder of that eternal provision that, that Jesus made for those who would come to him. Again, not bread that's going to leave us hungry. I mean, we'll eat this physical bread and it will leave us hungry. But the bread of life that will fill us completely, satisfy us completely. I, you know, when I think about what sits before us on, on the table this morning in light of Luke chapter 9, I'm really challenged in that area of satisfaction. What, what Jesus provided for the 12 apostles, when, when, when he provided for them for their upcoming journey, he told them that they don't need to take anything else with them. He gave them his power, he gave them his message, and he said, you don't need anything else. What you have is, is sufficient. And, and, and I wonder, do I view the communion table in that way? Do I see the, the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross as fully sufficient for, for my journey in this life? Do I see that as sufficient? Or, or, or am I tempted to think that I also need some other things in order to be truly provided for as I'm sent on this journey? Is the, is the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient? And then when I think about the feeding of the, the 5,000 men, they all, they all ate until they were completely satisfied and there was, there was extra left over. Again, do, do I view the, the communion table? Do I view the sacrifice of Jesus in that way? Do I find myself satisfied with what Jesus provided for me upon the cross? Am I satisfied with it? Do I recognize that there's even so much extra that I can't possibly take in all that Jesus gives to me? I, Jesus, he truly is Jehovah Jireh. And, and not only the Lord will provide, but the Lord has provided. If there's, if there's anything that I need, anything that I lack, it can be found right here at the table. Uh, it just can. Uh, if I'm struggling with my identity, what I need is right here at the table. If I'm struggling with offering forgiveness, what I need is, is right here at the table. If I'm struggling with prideful thoughts or actions, what I need is right here at the table. Uh, Jesus provides uh, 
and satisfies completely. That's who he is. That's how he works. And, and I would encourage you if, you, if you question that statement, then humbly come, accept his provision, and see. I, I feel confident in saying that, that uh, Jesus will provide. And I say that to any here who wonder, uh, I say it to myself as well. There's times where I'm tempted to think that I need something else. I need a little extra in whatever area Man, it's, it's in those moments that I need to remember my Jehovah Jireh, that the Lord has provided all that I need. He's given me the provision I need for my journey and that, that I ought to find satisfaction in that. I think that's a good challenge for us today as we take communion together. So I'll have the elders uh, come forward and... Uh, and we'll serve you. And I didn't give Kay a whole lot of time to get up here and play the piano, but uh, we'll take communion together.